Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park Welcome to Astros Baseball, a podcast by a fan. For the fans of the Houston Astros, here is your host, Rob Fontenot. Hey guys, thanks for tuning in to today's episode of Astros Baseball. My special guest today is Houston Chronicle sports reporter, Joseph Duarte. Welcome to the show, Joseph. Hey Rob, how you doing? I'm doing good. Just did some shopping at HEB today. Found some toilet paper. Uh, gave gave it to my my wife's daughter. They did, they needed some, so I'm t- toilet paper hunting today. Uh, All the essentials. Yeah, my wife told me not to buy any, but I told her, you know, somebody in the family might need it. So, how are you dealing with the COVID nineteen issues? Oh, you know, it's basically I'm probably in the same boat as every other person in this country, if not the world, kind of uh, um, finding things to do, at least in my profession, you know, where it's it's so uh, reliant on sports and sporting events and live events that uh, it's been tough. You know, this morning I woke up and I uh, I actually I, I watched the Houston Zoo's live feed of the cougar mascot. So that, that should tell you where, where you're at. I, I thought some of my readers would enjoy kind of a, uh, a wrap-up of a, of a feed that they're doing. Uh, they pick an animal every day, and today it was the cougars. And since I cover the University of Houston, thought that might be one day to, to waste an hour. But now I have the other 23 hours to uh, – to account for the day. So luckily uh, I have your, uh, your podcast, so that will take some time, but it's, uh, it's definitely a, a strange time that we're living in with so much uncertainty and, and you're essentially in, in a in house lockdown right now. Mm-hmm. So currently right now I've noticed on your Twitter page, you've been doing a uh, kind of like a bracket and a lot of people have been doing it. I've been doing it as well, but you have kind of like a, uh, Final Four type bracket for the the best uh, University of Houston athlete. That's what's going on right now. Yeah, it's for the it's for the greatest University of Houston athlete. Uh, you know, everybody wanted a an NCAA tournament March Madness bracket. It didn't happen when the NCAA canceled uh, all of its sports, just like all the other pro leagues. So, so I came up with the idea. You know, I, I solicited a few. Readers on Twitter, I called a few coaches, a few longtime uh, Houston supporters who, who really know the program, and we sat down like a selection committee, came up with 64 names that we thought were the, the greatest athletes or among the greatest athletes in the school's history. And you look at it, it's amazing 
the collection of athletes that they put through. So we seeded them just like a tournament, four brackets, excuse me, four regions, mm-hmm. 64 people. And your number one feeds, you know, Carl Lewis, the nine-time Olympic gold medalist, he's the, the number one overall. And you had Hakeem Olajuwon, Elvin Hayes, and Andre Ware. That's a pretty strong uh, group of uh, number one seats. And, you know, then you have like a, a, a Case Keenum, who's probably the most popular Cougar of all time, you know. And so you can go down the list and quickly 64 names came up and I allowed the given readers and, and – uh, anyone a chance to um, to vote the last two weeks. So it's taken up some time. There's haven't been too many upsets, and uh, you know people have kind of gotten their bracket fix off of it for for the last couple of weeks. Right. I did one for the uh, best sports logo, and the Astros won, so it was kind of a waste of time. Uh, was so- that the dome logo of the kind of the old school one, or did you go with the uh, the new new logo? Yeah, I, just with just the current one. Yeah. Okay. So you, uh, so you're doing that tournament. How far along are you? You're in the elite eight or final four right now? Or? Final four was announced today. So the three of the number ones made it in. The only number one that didn't get in was Elvin Hayes. He he lost in the vote to Case Keenum mm. by about twenty something votes. So that the the real the real interesting parts came late. Uh, Leroy Burrell, who was one time the world's fastest man. Uh, he lost to Con- Clyde Drexler in in the uh, in the Sweet Sixteen. A lot of people. There was a big uproar from the track community uh, <laughs> to my uh, to my notifications. And then the, yesterday uh, on uh, on Tuesday, the uh, Case Keenum uh, knocked off Elvin Hayes. Hmm. So you got the final four, and that's going the rest of the week for the voting. Yeah, final four will begin. I believe we're going to do it. Uh, Thursday, Friday voting, and then the uh, championship game will we'll cover the weekend into uh, the early part of next week. You've been covering Houston, uh, what, starting in – when did you start covering the uh, Houston Cougars? I was uh, assigned to, to cover the Cougars from uh, beginning in 2012, so I believe this is coming up on – this will be my ninth football season uh, that I've covered them. All right. One question I had for you about football is uh, last season you got your new coach Holgerson from uh, West Virginia. It was his first season there, right? Yes, it was. And uh, so, how how is the community as at least as far as the uh, the football community about where he's leading them to? I mean, is is it a positive feeling for the uh, football program? Well, Foley wasn't exactly what what people expected. Uh, there was a lot of a lot of news out of, out of that first season. Their their quarterback, Derek King, who at one time was uh, kind of an outside Heisman Trophy candidate, he decided after four games to take advantage of this new NCAA rule where you could uh, you could redshirt, you could play in four games, redshirt, and come back the following year. So Houston kind of. Uh, they they didn't do anything wrong. They used the rule that was as, as it was uh, stated, but maybe not how the NCAA intended. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what happened was the quarterback decides and, and a receiver uh, decide to uh, to sit out the rest of the year. The, the team goes four and eight, and then uh, in January the quarterback decides, you know, uh, maybe it's time for me to to make a change, and he decides to sign with Miami and go through the the transfer portal. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, that really just kind of all just put the the 
the so-called ice, you know, think of a really bad season and uh, they're, they're essentially now the, the, the guy that they have replacing the, the, the quarterback Clayton Toon will be the quarterback now. So uh, not exactly what they thought year two would be, but they, they've got pieces now and they had so many people banged up that they should be better. Schedule's tough, but it, uh, you know, Hoverson is one of those guys. He's a, he's a national name. He's been around, you know, he's goes to Texas tech. Um, you know, he was at West Virginia for eight years. Uh, so there's, there's, uh, and he's, he was also at Houston at one point. He was, you know, the offensive coordinator when Case Keenum was here. Hmm. So they're, you know, they're, they're hoping to see a big leap from year one to year two. Uh, but I can't imagine it gets any worse from a, from a health and, and performance standpoint than it did in the first season. I guess about three years ago, uh, Houston and Oklahoma played at Reliance Stadium. And I actually went to that game because I'm a big OU fan. But uh, how big of a win was that for Houston? I, I know they kind of faltered towards the end and lost to some teams they should have beat. But how big of a win was that for the program? Well, that that was huge for, for two reasons. They they were coming off of the, the year before where it was the big Peach Bowl win over Florida State. Uh, they went 13-1 and and came within a, you know, a player two of, of their only losses to UConn on the road, which should have never happened, but, you know, that's another story. Uh, and so, then, you know, they're coming off the big year. They're playing at home in the, the Advocare Texas Classic. It's fell out at uh, NRG Stadium. And, you know, you, you think of the, you know, that was Baker Mayfield, and, and you had uh, Ed Oliver was making his, his debut as a collegiate. Mm. And things just, just went so right from the beginning for Houston, you know, the, I think the turning point of the game was the, uh, the missed field goal that fell short, and the, the Houston player Brandon Wilson returns it over a hundred yards for a touchdown there in the third quarter, and yeah. Houston goes on to win it. And, and you mentioned the rest of the season. You know, later on they beat Lamar Jackson, who who wins the Heisman that year, and, and Louisville in a, in a Thursday primetime game. So right there, if they had taken care of business the rest of the, the games, they they lose the Navy a few weeks earlier uh, from the Louisville game, you know, they're potentially that, that outsider uh, for the, uh, the 14 playoff. It would have been really interesting because with wins over Oklahoma and Louisville, it would have been really hard to, uh, and Louisville was number three at that point. I believe Oklahoma was number three also at that point when they played in the opener. Yeah. It would have been hard to, uh, to pass up Houston, but you know, they had some things happen during the season that, that cost them a couple of wins and, and, a, and a big, big moment because that was kind of the beginning of, of everything that would happen with the, um, you know, you had the, the flirtation with the Big 12 and Houston wanting to join that Power 5. That, that was kind of the, if you want to look, I don't want to call it golden era, but most recent chance for Houston to kind of move up uh a ladder in the, in the pecking order among the conferences. And it was just a, an unfortunate season, how things played out. And ultimately, you know, the big 12 decided to stay put. So uh blown chance, you know, if you want to call it that, but they, they certainly haven't gone back to the level that they were for, for 15 and 16 since then. Looking back 2002 to 2005, you're covering the Longhorns where you still, were you living in Houston and working for the Houston Chronicle at the time? 
I, I was. I, I've been with the Chronicle my entire career out of out of college. I, I went to the University of Texas at Austin, and uh, I got my job right out of school from from the Chronicle. So uh, I was uh, kind of going. It was a unique situation. I, I was kind of going back and forth. You, you could pretty much say I had two residences. I, I would spend about four days a week in Austin, and I would do some Big Twelve stuff. So along the way, I would go a day over to Waco and and, and check in with Baylor. Mm-hmm. Uh, during the week, if there was something else going on, they might send me to, to Fort Worth for for TCU. Who, even though they weren't in the Big Twelve at the time, they were you know still close by. So they kind of had me as our as our Central Texas bureau. But uh, I would uh, definitely be on campus a majority of the week. Went to every games, and man, that that was a uh, a crazy season. Uh, you know, that was Vince Young's. Uh, you know, they were coming off the Rose Bowl win the, the previous year, and he, he's a Houston guy. So my, my assignment was basically to to track everything of a of a of a, a guy who was was not only going to be in the Heisman Trophy race from the beginning, he was considered a high NFL draft uh, pick or, or or candidate. So we you know you go through the season, and I remember I think it was week two uh, we we covered a game in in, in Ohio State. And, and they won that one on a, on a big pass play uh, to Lima Swede uh, late in the game. And then just the season takes off. You know, they beat Oklahoma. They're down by, I believe, 20-something at Oklahoma State. And, and Vince single-handedly uh, brings them back in that game. And then there's just so many lopsided games uh, from that point on. Uh, they beat Colorado, I believe, 70-3 to here in Houston and the Big 12 championship game to, to punch that ticket to uh, the national championship game. But, but for me, one of the, the biggest moments of that season, we're, we're at the Hard Rock Cafe in New York City the first weekend of December, and, and Vince Young is sitting there, and he had just lost the Heisman Trophy to Reggie Bush. And that, if you're a Longhorn fan, that's probably the best thing that could have ever happened to the school because the look in Vince's eyes that night, you knew it was now his mission to go and win the national championship. But he felt like he should have won the Heisman. I and mean, Reggie Bush had a great year. I mean, it was incredible. And, of course, I believe nobody now owns officially that both after some of the sanctions and stuff uh, went down uh, with USC and, and, and Reggie Bush. But Vince... Uh, Vince thought he should have won it. And then about a month later, you know, we're, we're there in Southern California at the Rose Bowl. And it was a game for the ages. I think they, they call it one of the two greatest games in college football history. And uh, we're all on deadline. And, you know, you're, you're, people don't realize when you're up in the press box, you're not just up there with some popcorn and a soda or beer watching the game and <laughs> enjoying it. And we're under deadline. And, and you just see the the moments that happened in games where it was a big defensive stand on, on Lindell White or a, a big interception uh, in the corner of the end zone on a drive by by USC. But fourth down, you know, with under a minute to go, I think it was fourth and five or fourth and six. Mm-hmm. I should know that. Yeah. And uh, Vince picks up a block from an offensive lineman along the right side and kind of just dances high steps into the end zone. And there you have it, this, this national championship for Texas that they hadn't had since the, uh, the sixties, the late sixties. So that, that was a, 
an incredible season. That that would probably go down. And you know, people look at you and say, "Well, hey, you you went to Texas and stuff." You know, I, I don't look at it like that. You kind of have this oath when you become a sports writer that you, you put all that aside, and it, it's a job. It really, is a job. But right. to me, that was a great job to have because there were. It was such a great story. For me, I root for good stories. I don't root for teams or people. Mm-hmm. And that was just a great season of stories. And it wasn't over after that. The day after, I, I followed Vince to an appearance at the Jay Leno show. Uh, I kind of was assigned to Vince from that point because we knew that there was potential that he could uh, leave early for the NFL draft. So I kind of, wherever Vince went, I was there. And uh, about a week or so later, he declared, and you know, the rest is history. Maybe the NFL's career didn't go as many thought it would. Uh, certainly, probably all thought it would, mm-hmm. but but it was still 2005 will go down for me as, as professionally as one of the, the seasons that I had the most fun covering any particular team. You covered uh, the Texans for a couple of years, right? Yeah, I, I was there from uh, the, their inaugural year in 2002 up until uh, I started covering the Longhorns in, in the summer of, of 2005. So kind of, uh, I guess that would be three seasons and uh, an extra off season. So let's get your thoughts real quick about the Texans trading away Hopkins. <laughs> you- they, they, it, it shouldn't surprise me. You know, you look at this organization, and from the get-go, they tend to do some things backwards. Uh, I was fortunate enough when I covered them that they, they weren't very good. They weren't good at all. You know, they, they were known for giving up a lot of sacks, for, for David Carr always being under pressure. And, you know, but I, I did cover Andre Johnson's uh, early years. Mm-hmm. and and But basically, you know, they were an expansion team. So you look at that was, you know, 18 years ago, and they're still making moves that, that scratch your head. I, I'm not a, a big fan of the dual role of Bill O'Brien as head coach, general manager. I think there there needs to be some type of, you know, a check and balance system where, you know, he, he's got a lot of control, and that, that can be good for some people, and it can be dangerous for others. Right. And uh, the what they got, and then later on, I guess we've heard the stories that I think it was the Eagles that the deal was was very different or structured differently than what Arizona eventually got. But but if you're going to trade away a piece of your franchise uh, that that as, that is as good as, as DeAndre Hopkins and, and the fact that he's, he's one of the, the if not the top you know two receivers in the league right now, you you got to get more for him. And I I thought that it was very disappointing. It sent a bad message that uh, management and, and really Bill O'Brien uh, wasn't able to execute a better better deal for such a, a prime asset. I mean, they, they, they essentially, in my opinion, gave him away. Yeah, uh, It's like when you go to a garage sale and you see something that really shouldn't be out there yeah. and it's, and it's for $10 or $5, you, you snatch it up. And, and I, I think it was highway robbery. Uh, by Arizona because they they saw the uh, they saw the opportunity and uh, you know they they uh, they grabbed it, but really really bad deal I thought. I believe a day after that or pretty close to that, the Bills made a trade. I can't really remember who was involved, but I re- I remember people on Twitter uh, 
tweeting that uh, that they should have called Buffalo. They would have got a bad. I think Buffalo gave away some first round picks. They got who I can't remember who the receiver was though. They traded somebody away, but uh, the uh, the Texans got rid of Clowney last season, right? Uh, what do you right. think about that? Was that a, you think that's another mistake? Yeah, I mean, they, I mean, you that one was. I mean, at the time, it, it was a, a big, big move. This one, this one though, was kind of the the one that. I guess if you look at it, this is the, the the head scratcher, and you know I'm a big George Strait fan, and Arizona basically sold them some oceanfront property in Arizona, yeah, uh, and, and got them to bite, and and I don't know what what that says about the ownership and and the fact that they're that they're all in on one guy, or or is Bill going to show us that there was some huge re? And here's the the bad part is you know they. There's really been there's been no pressure because of everything that's going on. So mm-hmm. you, if you're going to pull the trigger on something, this is the best time because there's no accountability, there's no uh, conference calls, there's no press conferences. You know, you can't really uh, really hold their, their their feet to the fire on why they did this. But uh, you know, there's just there's just no reason you know that they're just making these kind of moves. And but Bill could you know this season if it's played. Yeah, could prove us all wrong, and there was a reason. But I just, I just don't see it. You know, with Clowney, at least, you know, when he went up to Seattle, you, you've seen kind of what's happened since. And I, I think there was even some talk this off season that he he might have left. But I think they, in the last couple of days, they have re-signed him, or they they've started the talks to to sign him or or extend a contract. There's just there's just no reason. I mean, you 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 have Fuller on the Texans and. And I thought once he's healthy, you can compliment uh, him with, with Hopkins. But now, now what do you have? You don't you don't have that uh, guy for Deshaun Watson, and that's where this is all a shame because you you're you're losing the the the, the formidable years of a, of a JJ Watt or your or of a Deshaun Watson. And right. What kind of message does that send to those guys? Uh, how long to be here, or or will they even? at least on Deshaun's part about wanting to be here long-term if, if you're taking away, you know, his weapons. I'll tell you this, if David Johnson turns out to be the David Johnson of three years ago, it might end up being a decent trade, but he really hasn't done anything the last few years. I know the one year that he was like the best player in the NFL and I had drafted him first in my fantasy football draft and that was the beginning of the end so it could have been the curse that I put on everybody when I draft him first but if I mean if he turns out to be how good he was three years ago it might it might not turn out to be that that bad but I mean I mean you have someone as good at Hopkins I mean you you, you got to keep that guy right Right. No, and he was, you know, he was, if, if it wasn't a big play by Hopkins, you know, he, he was a, a guy to get you out of a, out of a pinch. You know, he, he made those catches. He was sure handed. He could help you move the chains. You know, going back to the beginning with the Texans, you know, you look at it, the, the backfield's always been sort of a question mark. And, you know, that, I know that goes hand in hand with, with your scheme and your offensive line, how good it is, but you know, you go through a, a sequence of uh, a large part of their history, and they they've never had that every down go to going to rack it up, 
you know, running backs, you mm-hmm. know, and my, at least when I covered him, you know, Dominic Davis, so I believe he goes by another name now. He was a thousand yard rusher at one point. And I think more recently they've, they've had guys that, you know, were, were serviceable, but if you can get, you know, Johnson back to, to where he was at some point, uh, I, I think you have a chance and, and maybe that's the direction they're going more of a ground oriented game. But again, you know, you had Deshaun and what he can do. So I just don't know how, I don't know what their plans are. I'm not around them as much anymore to, to, to really just sit down and say, you know, what is the, the long-term plan, but on the surface, the, the immediate look of it is just, uh, just really puzzling. And, and I will be interested to see how it goes because, you know, when you think that they're just right there on the, on the cusp of, um, of taking that next step, maybe you know, getting to the the, 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 the championship game of, of the of the conference, uh, and then just things fall apart, or you have a a Kansas City like performance from a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just it just it really I think it inflates the fan base. They 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 want a consistent winner, and they and now now that they've been a winner at times, they want that they can can go to that next level. One question I have for you. Um, so you covered the Astros, the Texans, the Longhorns, and now um, University of Houston. Who makes those decisions? Is, does somebody move you there, or are you asking to cover a team? How does how does that come about? Well, at, at the Chronicle, you know, things have changed over the years. When I got there, we had a – my first year was as an intern in 95, and then I, then I joined – uh, staff around 90, you know, the late fall 96. And, and we've had, you know, larger staffs and just like every business and, and especially in our industry, we've had cutbacks over the years. So as the staffs have gotten smaller, uh, we, we tend to, to try to keep the beats fresh and you, you don't necessarily have one person for long periods of time covering teams. There's exceptions like John McClain, for instance, mm-hmm. and Jonathan Fagan on the Rockets. But but what happens is, uh, you know, you you kind of set it up where ba- the baseball beat is the most grueling beat. That's the paper. The, the, the NBA beat, you're really, you know, short trips, but they're back-to-back with the, with the baseball, 162 games, and then you have the six weeks or so of spring training. It, it gets really grueling, so... Uh, in my case, when I got to the Chronicle, I started covering uh, small colleges. That was my my first beat. That included, you know, Prairie View, Texas Southern, and I had other opportunities. I had the, I had just come off of an internship uh, at the Dallas Morning News and, and thought about joining them in a bureau covering the Sooners, actually, and 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 Colorado, uh, Oklahoma State out for their uh, for their bureau up there. Mm-hmm. But uh, I decided to take a chance, and, and I liked Houston. And I, I remember my boss telling me, hey, look, you, you stick in there a year, I'll, I'll find something for you. I'll, I'll make it work for you. And right in uh, January of 1998, I, I'm in the office and the opening comes up. Our beat writer at the time decided to leave. His name was Alan Truex. And uh, they like to have two people on the on the, on the the Astros beat. Uh, most of the other beats have, have won. The NBA has won. John McClain and Aaron Wilson cover the Texans. So it's usually a two or one man uh, beat. And uh, they told me right there. And I remember thinking, well, yeah, I'll do it. And I'm sitting in the office that day. And Tim Bogar, 
signed a, a one-year deal, and that was my first short. So Tim Bonar was the first Astro that I ever called and introduced myself and then said, hey, I'm going to be coming. I'm your new beat guy. And, you know, I talked to him about his contract. And uh, the, the fun began maybe a week or so later. They told me to get on a plane. They had just uh, they had just signed Moises Alou. And uh, my uh, – actually, that was a trade for Moises Alou. Mm-hmm. So they sent me down to the Dominican Republic, and I spent about four, four or five days there uh, to do a story on Moises Salou. And I know this is kind of going off on, on your question, but uh, the, 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 the long answer is that they try to move people around and uh, not – maybe it's also benefits to you know, keep things fresh and not get it stale. And, and when I covered the Texans, John McClain was kind of our NFL guy. Mm-hmm. And when I got off the Texans, we kind of went to John covering more of the Texans and not the NFL as much as he had. So that answers that question. But the, the, the funny story is on, on Moises Alou, I go down there and I set up, I meet him the first day. We're at the, like an opening night of the Caribbean World Series. And he's like, yeah, yeah, let's do this story. Here's my number. We'll make it happen. He knew we were going to come down there. I had a photographer with me. Mm-hmm. And I called him the next day. He doesn't answer. And I start to worry. I'm like, okay, this is this is not good. So the entire day goes by. I don't get him. I spend the next three days chasing Moises Alou up and down the, uh, the Dominican coast. At one point, uh, the photographer and I end up near the Haitian border. If that tells you wow. anything from a, from a geographical standpoint where we were on the island. And, you know, we're the trip's for five days. You got to get them or, or you're in trouble. And during that time, I went to, to kind of use, utilize my time. I went over to the Astros Academy that they had at the Dominican Republic. They used to have them in the Dominican and Venezuela. So um, I did some stories on some of the, the young prospects that they had down there coming through the system or, or how they found uh, prospects uh, among the, the, the locals. And that was to, to one, I thought it was a good story, but two, I, I couldn't get Moises Alou on the phone. And he wouldn't answer, and he, it was sort of a uh, chasing him up and down the, the country. And on my last night, we're, uh, we're up in the hills of the mountains, and, and these are places that I would not have ever thought to look. And my, my photographer that we hired as a freelancer knew the island like the back of his hand, and he says, let's try this. And we, we entered like this area where there's a bunch of houses on the, on the mountain and the electricity is out for that part for some reason. And we pull up to a, a pretty nice house, but it was all dark. It was pitch dark. There were a couple of SUVs and the, uh, the front lawn, with the high beams on that were beaming into the, uh, the house so that they could have light. And we knock on the door and, and sure enough, Moist Salute answers the door. And he looks and he smiles and uh, he's like, you found me. And I look at my photographer. I was like, yeah, I, you know, I had a, a local helping me to track you down. All right, folks, we're back from our small break with Joseph Duarte. Uh, go ahead and continue your story about Moise Zalou. Yeah, we were, uh, we finally had, had, had hooked up, uh, not by anything that he did, but by us basically chasing him over the island. And uh, as we get to the, the house and he knocks knock on the door, you know, the power's out, it's dark, and the, the SUVs have the beams and into the, the living room where they can see. He answers, and uh, 
reluctantly, he's like, okay, let's do this interview. So, you know, he was never a, a big media guy. But, uh, you know, he knew we had come to Houston. He knew he was going to be on the team. And it was a chance for the Astro fans to get to know him. So we uh, we gather his family, his wife and kids. And I remember they sat in a, a boat that was parked in the, in the yard. And I did an interview for about 30, 45 minutes in, in the dark out there. And, you know, we talked about everything. He was such a, a, a interesting figure, not only in his career, but, you know, his father, Philippe Ballou, you know, mm-hmm. His uncles played for the Astros, and uh, there was a lot of history there. So it was it was a good introduction, and those are kind of the stories that I like, where you can actually go places and, and get to know the athletes. But Moises Salou, uh, whether it was the treadmill incident that, that wrecked one of his years uh, with the Astros, I believe that was going into the '99 season. He, he was certainly an interesting guy to cover. Mm-hmm. He also had the. Uh the one interesting fact about him, about his hands, was, is there <laughs> any truth to that? No, it was. He, he admitted that. He, uh, uh, you know, I'm not sure what, what phrase to use, but, you know, yeah, it was the, the, the urinating yeah. uh, on the hands to, to help with the grip of, of, of the bat. <clears throat> but, no, that was true, and he, he did admit that on the record. Yeah, I remember when that came out and everybody was – thinking about, oh, man, I shook hands with that guy or whatever. I, I remember that story. That, that's what I it's remember most about him. back then, unfortunately. Yeah. So this was when you were – they were still in the Dome at this time. Yes. Wearing the blue and gold. So uh, what else you got? Tell us some more stories about uh, – Well, you know, that was 98 and 99. Those were my, my two years at the Dome. You know, I was there for the Larry Derricker incident. Uh, when he had the uh, the grand mal seizure and the dugout, that was really scary moment. Uh, you just you know, the next month that followed was just craziness. Whether you were wondering whether you know the manager would ever be back, much less you know how he was going to do health wise. And I remember the day that he came back. I'm sitting in the uh, I think they called it what well, the, the seats, uh, kind of like the Diamond Club mm-hmm. at the Dome, right behind home plate, and Derek Bell is sitting there. And I'm sitting next to him, and, and Derek's complaining about being dropped from the number two spot in the order to, I believe, seven in the order. Wow. And I'm like, Derek, your manager is just coming back today from from this this health scare. And, uh, you know, those are kind of the, the stories I remember just because it it, it shows how how close the, the, the game itself crosses into life and how, you know, these players sometimes reacted, you know, whether it was – contract issues or playing time or where they are in the batting order. But that, that particular moment, and, and for, I'm sure your, your listeners know this, Derek Bell was just such a, he was a unique character. He and Carl Everett were probably the two most unique players from interview standpoints and just life in general that I, that I covered on the Astros beat. Uh, you know, other stories, you know, I was there, I wasn't on the road trip, but when Billy Wagner took the line drive uh, in Arizona, that was another incident because, you know, I got to know Billy Wagner pretty well during during my time uh, covering the team, and he was one of, really one of the good guys. Yeah. Uh, and then you, you look at uh, another incident. I was, I was actually playing golf with my boss here in Houston the day that Kerry Woods uh, struck out 20. Uh, so that was uh, an interesting one. But, then, you know, there were so many – so many cool Astro stories of the, you know, I guess I would have been 
covering the '98 and '99 seasons were, were playoff seasons. Right. Uh, the, the 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 102 wins and '98 up until the, the the recent teams that was the greatest team in terms of wins. And I really thought they would have gone to the World Series, but you know they ran up against you know Kevin Brown and, and San Diego. And I believe it was 16 strikeouts in that game one. And Carl Lewis made a excuse me, I'm, I'm thinking U of H. Carl Everett right, right. Uh, made a big stink the, the day before about you know who's Kevin Brown. And we ran those quotes, and, and Kevin Brown sort of introduced himself <laughs> in that game one. And uh, but it was just how that series played out. You know, Ken Caminetti was was playing third for the Padres at the time. They go on to the uh, the World Series, and then '99. Uh, they're at the dome against the Braves, and I believe they have the bases loaded. And Walt Weiss, or Walt Weiss, does something big in that game. I believe he came up with a big hit, but also they ground into a, a double play with the bases loaded late that that stalled uh, stalled an inning, and and that's just how things just played out for the Astros during those years. They were so close and could never get through it, and then they moved downtown and. That was just a disaster for for the first season, and you know I walk into the the Enron with with Jose Lima, and he he looks at the the Crawford boxes, and he's like, "Bro, you know, bro, I can't pitch here." And that yeah. was the sign to me that in his mind he was he was cooked from the beginning in terms of not not going to be able to pitch there. And he, you know he gave up forty eight home runs, and I I would guess that both right. thirty were. Or at home, so I mean, those were just those two last dome seasons were really fun. Randy Johnson, for instance, you know he comes in. I'm I'm in Houston at the trade deadline on July 31st, 1998, and the next morning I'm on a plane to Pittsburgh because you know that was a Friday night. I fly out to Pittsburgh on Saturday because Randy Johnson's going to start uh, Sunday for the Astros against the Pirates. And the next two months after that, it was like a rock star. In Houston, he brought out the sellout crowds to the dome. I remember a good game against Cincinnati that he pitched. That it was just, the place was rocking, and it wasn't even the playoffs. Yeah, but uh, he goes eleven and one with a sub two ERA that that final couple of months. And you you think okay, now they have their guy, and and people don't you know remember you know you still had Mike Hampton, you still had Shane Reynolds. Oh yeah. Uh, you had, I, I believe, Chris Holt or, or Lima was part of that at some point. Yeah, uh, they were good. I mean, they had the pitching lined up, and Randy Johnson just—they couldn't do anything against Kevin Brown, and, and that was that was their opportunity because for for the months before they had flirted with, do we give up Scott Ellerton or Richard Hidalgo for uh, for Roger Clemens? Everybody was clamoring for Astros to make that deal to get Roger Clemens. Mm -hmm. And instead they go out and, you know, they pulled the trigger and gave up a a lot of good minor leaguers package did for, for Randy Johnson. And and he gave them their, the two best months possible. He was never going to sign. I think he got three years of 30 million to go back home to Arizona, Mm -hmm. but, but he gave them a shot and they hadn't been close in a really long time. I remember my first playoff game I went to. I, I thought it was 99, but it could have been 98. Um, I, I just remember them getting beat by the Braves. I, I think it was like a five-game series, and they were already down 2-0 to zero when they lost the third game. That, that's just the memory that I have. I don't know if I'm right or wrong. It was so long ago. But I, I just remember. The Braves in 97, too. It was 97? 
I, I just I started going to uh, Astro games. I became an Astro fan in '96. So all of the it's almost the time you were covering it is when I was a fan, and uh, so I went to a lot of games at the Astrodome, and I remember being excited about the big unit and all these guys, and uh, the Astros were so good they just couldn't get to the uh, they just couldn't get it all until 2005 when they finally went to the World Series. Uh, so they, they, they had such great personalities too. You know, mm-hmm. a lot of your listeners will, will you know, they may not have been the the, the Bagwells and Vigios, but you, you had the Billy Spires and the Ricky Gutierrez and the Tony Eusebios and the Jay Powells and <laughs> Mike McNaughty's. I mean, you could go down the list just of guys that have come through that they left their mark in some way. They, you know, right? They're not the Hall of Famers, but they they had a lot of great players on those teams. Yeah, they were they were always really good. Uh, so you you moved to Enron, which turned out to be a bad name. <laughs> um, and I, I remember looking up a story about Lima, how he did give up forty eight homers and he got traded to Detroit or somewhere. But uh, how, how was uh, how was it covering the team there when you moved to Enron? Well, it was it was different because you know for so many years, if you're a pitcher, you you pitched in a dome and that was such a pitcher friendly place. Mm-hmm. And then you sort of had to reinvent yourself, or it was going to be tailored to certain people. Like Chris Holt was more of a, a ground ball pitcher. Uh, Jose Lima was a fly ball pitcher, and you know there's only so much. There, I think it was three fifteen to to left field, mm-hmm. so there wasn't a whole lot of. Uh, Margin for error, and I think it worked both ways. If you were a hitter for the Astros, your eyes lit up when you when you saw left field, center field was one of the deeper, if not the deepest, in in baseball. But and then you had to, to navigate Cow's Hill, right? But uh, it was just, I think it was it was just it was a great time simply because they had everybody loved the dome for 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 the nostalgia. But Houston baseball in downtown is, is sort of where it was meant to be. You had this – they were part of the explosion of new ballparks. I think during that time, you know, PNC Park in Pittsburgh came about. Comerica Park in Detroit was, was coming online. Uh, you know, you were seeing the last few years of Bush Stadium and Riverfront Stadium. And so they were kind of at the beginning of, of the, the new wave of, of stadiums. And that train was there, and you had all the bells and whistles. It was just, you know, other than the product on the on the field, it was just a great time for Houston baseball because fans had waited so long for for that new uh, freshness of, of of being part of uh, something that was going to be from the ground up. So, you know, I, I was downtown a lot during that time watching it get built. I thought the concept of, of attaching it to Union Station was was really a nice touch. And, you know, you never know. You know the quirkiness of, of a train. What what's going to do? But I think that's worked out. And actually, Bobby is the uh, the conductor. I, mm-hmm. I crossed paths with him before he became the conductor. He was over at San Jacinto, and I would cover them. So I got to know the the train guy before he became the train guy. Uh-huh. So there, you know, there was just a lot of cool things about about moving downtown. It was just unfortunate that that the season coincided uh, with Lima. I'll never forget they're playing the Cubs and and before you sat down for your you know from for your seat he had given up four home runs in one inning 
Uh, and one of them was the Sosa that was just a bomb where the uh, where the uh, Sitco sign used to be. I believe that's where they do the uh, the penance uh, on the uh, the lighting uh, area up there in left, yeah. left center field. Mm-hmm. But he gave up four home runs in a matter of probably seven or eight pitches, and that just kind of summed up the struggles that he had that year. And a few weeks later, he he always talked to the media. He said, "Well, I'm doing a media blackout. I'm not talking to you guys." And it lasted about a day <laughs> because he loved to talk. Right. And uh, we, we would stand there and watch BP and he would play his merengue music or his videos on the big board while, while the players would hit. So his teammates would always give him a hard time that they had to listen to uh, the leave a time soundtrack while they took batting practice. Right. So what were the uh, players' opinions on Tiles Hill? when they first went to the stadium and discovered that there's going to be a big uh, hill in center field with a flagpole. And... Well, you know, uh, players, you know, athletes in general, uh, they, they try not to, when it comes to management, kind of at least publicly you watch what you say at the time, there wasn't a, there wasn't a lot of complaining, but I remember there was a lot of concern, mm-hmm. especially if you were, in center, if you were, you know, I guess it would have been Lance Berkman at the time, guys like that, uh, because I mean, you, you, this is their livelihood, and if you put if you put an object in the middle, that they're going to have to navigate. Uh, and I believe they took that idea. Was it from the, I don't know if it was from the Polo Grounds mm-hmm. uh, to to have something to play like that? But if I do remember, there was a lot of players that privately were kind of shaking their head that, hey, look, this is kind of gimmicky. You know, why would we do something like this? This is this is not baseball in terms of how, you know, how it's meant to be. You know, this shouldn't be, you shouldn't be navigating an obstacle course. Right. Uh, but for the most part, you really had to hit it to, to get it up there. And then I, I remember there was a few moments, at least early on, where, where that came into play, more so the incline, and players, you know, tripping going up the, the the hill, or 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 kind of bumbling their way around that. I never really saw the the flagpole uh, change anything or, or cause any concern or anything. It was always just the, the the trying to remember that you you had to go up that hill. And you know, when they took it off, you know, yeah, I thought it was cool in terms of it was part of the park's history but mm-hmm. as you've seen you know it, it, it hasn't really lost anything since they they took it out yeah i like it a lot better now uh you were talking about the uh players being politically correct or you know not saying anything negative about the uh management or whatever uh did you ever have any uh cool discussions with any players off the record well the i mean we've talked about so it wasn't necessarily managers uh, or about management uh the great thing about about baseball is uh you spend a lot more time than any other sport with these athletes and when i say that you go down to spring training and it's very late or at least it used to be it's not so much now mm-hmm. it'd be so laid back that you know you'd be there in the morning and you sit at lockers and and have conversations you know in-depth interviews that could last, you know, 30, 35 minutes. Nowadays, you might get five or six minutes with a player and you'd have a group around you. But as a beat guy, that was kind of where you got your stories. That's where you found out stuff about them that, you know, you could use for your 
daily stuff, your notes or bigger, you know, bigger stories. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and that, and that translates when you come home with the team from, from spring training, you're, you're there four hours before the game. When the, when the clubhouse opens, you kind of work your way down the, down the, the lockers, depending on, on who you need that day. Um, but you know, a, a lot of the stuff that you talk that that's off the record is, is generally sometimes if it's a contract year, um, you know, those are some things that, you know, would come up and you try to get a, a feel for where they're at and mm-hmm. where their agent is, what they're going to be asking for at the end of the season. You know, is there a chance to work a deal during the season? You know, if they're injured, you know, you kind of get some stuff from, from that angle or if they're unhappy. And that could be everything from contract situation to playing time or, or why they're they're in a certain spot in the order. There's a lot of things that come up, but it was never – you never just sat there. And, and if, if something was on their mind that they felt compassion, passionate about, they would probably go on the record. It wouldn't have to be an off-the-record. But I don't remember – back in those days, the Astros were just – things were rolling so well for most of the time that you didn't have any big in-season explosion-type news that came out because when that, when that engine got running for them – uh, at least in '98, '99, uh, it it really was good times. I mean, I don't I don't remember uh, really one instance where somebody was just uh, going to rock the boat, so to speak. It, it was it was really a uh, until these recent years, it was really a good time for Houston baseball. You spoke earlier about Billy Wagner being one of the good guys. Uh, how surprised are you that he's not in the Hall of Fame yet? I'm I'm probably a little bit more surprised that that, that where his vote total and the percentage has been. Uh, I, I thought it would take him some time to get there if he ever did. I mean, you look at his numbers and and I don't have them in front of me and I can't compare. But right, uh, you know, he he certainly uh, did his part in his career. Uh, does he ever get? You know, I, I think I think it's going to be one of those down to the the final year of, of balloting type deal uh, and you probably would know this better than me right now I think he finished with what about 300 and something saves I guess yeah I don't know I just, yeah, I, mean, I just think the save total is kind of what hurt him as far as I know it, his strikeouts is what's good right his strikeouts per nine innings oh yeah there were some seasons where he was, I think it was like per nine innings it was like 12 or so I mean, it was it was pretty pretty impressive for, for being a reliever but then you look at uh, some of the some of the I think some of the relievers now are, are, are hurt by the, how they're gauged. And you look at like a Mariano Rivera, uh, who did what he did, and, and and you know everybody's different, but relievers are held to, to certain standards, and it's and it's tougher as a reliever yeah. to get into the hall. I, I never had a Hall of Fame vote because I didn't cover for ten years, and and that's one of the criteria to to get a vote. Uh, but in terms of just Sheer coming into the game in the in the ninth inning, they didn't do a lot of two inning stuff with Wagner as as much. But when he came in for those final three outs, it, it was electric. And you know, you yeah. had a guy, a lefty, on top of it, throwing a hundred plus. Uh, he he was pretty special. One year, he uh, he let us uh, take a, a photo for our cover on on the spring training, and we lit the baseball. We dipped it into like uh, some old. I believe, and we lit the ball on fire, 
and he held the ball up and, and it's you know billy the kid this flamethrower right and it was the coolest photo and uh the Astros were really nervous on the side when he was holding that ball, uh-huh. but it turned out to be a great photo, and that just kind of summed up him. That uh, this guy, as small as he was, how hard he could throw. You also have uh, Berkman. He was on the ballot. I think it was last season for the first time, and he he got. I guess you have to get a certain amount of votes, or you just get taken off the first year. So I was pretty surprised about that. I mean, there, I've seen people get in that he probably had a better career. I think he had injuries and his career wasn't as long. But do you think Berkman should have got more than one year to state his case? You know, you look at his numbers and as a switch hitter, the number of home runs that he has, I believe a switch hitter, if he, he's he's up there near the top. And, you know, he's another one I guess you could make, you know, you could make a case for. But my, my issue is, you know, there's there's certain things, and I'm not looking into that he did certain things, but you've, you've got the voting now a days that's geared towards the, the steroid era. And right. then I guess the next wave will be when, when all the electronic stuff, these guys eventually come up for for uh, for balloting on, on what happened during the electronic age of, of science dealing and, and all this other stuff. But with Berkman, you just kind of you ran into a situation where he, he was at a time when where numbers were were really big, and you know you don't lump him into the the steroid era. There's never been any proof on that. Then you you look at him. What was his nickname? Bad Elvis, I believe, mm-hmm. or Big Puma. Yeah, Big um, Puma. But but just you know just him as a player, he he, he wasn't the greatest in terms of fielder, um, and he'll he'll be the first to admit that, especially in field. But numbers-wise, I, I just don't know if that, maybe if, if people look at that and how they're weighing that. But uh, I, I'm more for smaller classes and, and not just voting for a certain number that you, you have that you can vote as many as you want. I, I, I think the Hall of Fame should be a, a selective group. And I think many people, when, when they say the name Lance Bergman, will say great player, but just probably not Hall of Fame worthy. Now, I could be wrong, and, and, and he convinced him, but I just – same playing with Wagner. You know, great pitcher, but but there there should be a distinguished you know, between great and, and, and Hall of Famer. I thought Bagwell and Vigio, for what they did, were, were oh, certainly yeah. Hall of Famers. And, yeah. you know, you go down the list of other guys that had good years but, but weren't necessarily Hall of Famers. And I think Lance – you know, Lance won a, a World Series ring, and I think he's be the first to tell you that he's content and – you know, accomplished what he wanted, made a made a good amount of money, and you know, he's going to live life now. Going with the uh, current players that we have, you have Jose Altuve, who is definitely on pace to be in the Hall of Fame. How much do you think, if he continues to be great, how much do you think the scandal will blemish his career and his chances in the Hall of Fame? Well, that was one thing that I, that I was talking with some colleagues right right when everything came out. And, you know, you look at what he's done in the MVPs and the leading the league in average and just everything he does. His numbers are, are right now certainly would be on pace uh, for inclusion. But my, my question is, how much is he going to be penalized and how much of a stain has all this caused? Because you, you've heard 
the the reports that he didn't wasn't involved in that or he, he didn't want to be involved or I told him not to mm-hmm. uh, voters don't don't look at it that way you're almost guilt by association yeah and you know that for right or wrong you know he's his part of his career now has has an asterisk just like you know Correa just like some of the other guys and I I'm afraid that when this thing comes up let's just say it's 10 years from now you either you're going to run into two things. One, you know, hopefully, if you're an Astro, a lot of those voters won't be voting anymore, and maybe they'll they'll be a clean slate, and right. people will have shorter memories. Or this thing can carry where if he doesn't, you know, if he was a first ballot or second time around, maybe he has to wait a long time. Like you know, do I think Roger Clemens or Barry Bonds will ever get in? I think at some point, one of them is going to get in. And I, and I think it's going to be one of those at the very tail end by the slimness of margin type deal. Yeah, they're getting closer. Um, I, think that's, I, think that, I think that's where Jose Altuve is kind of destined to have to wait it out. So I think you kind of uh, – I, I learned one thing from you today. I, did, I didn't have any idea that you had to cover uh, baseball for 10 years to get a vote. That's pretty interesting. Uh, so you have anything else to add before we uh, let you go? No, just I uh, appreciate, you know, podcasts like yours that, that help, you know, educate and, and also, you know, get spread baseball. I mean, if, if you don't love baseball in this world, yeah, there's something wrong with you. And I, right. I have a five-year-old, and I as soon as I could get a baseball in his hand, I did. And he's a lefty. And his first Little League team, unfortunately, last year was the Pirates. <laughs> and I was the coach, and uh, we didn't do very well. So anytime that you can spread baseball and the message, I, I just think it's a great thing. And I've been fortunate to, to, like you said, when you started really getting into the Astros in the late 90s, I took him to a game. Uh, uh, a friend of mine, uh, Javier Bracamonte, who's the bullpen catcher, uh, mm. saw us at the stands and flipped him a baseball. So that he really loved that moment. But it, it's just cool. And, and to be in Houston – We've been very fortunate to have a, a lot of good players and good baseball come through. So, no, appreciate everything you do. Thanks for allowing me to relive some of these, uh, these memories. And there's a bunch more. So, depending on how long this uh, this lasts, I'd be happy sometime to, to share some more that we didn't get into. But uh, thank you for having me on. All right, buddy. I appreciate you joining me. Uh, enjoyed all your stories. And I really do appreciate you uh, coming on today. No, thank you. All right. Have a good day, sir. Thanks for listening to this episode of Astros Baseball. Make sure to subscribe so that way you will be alerted when there is a new episode. Follow Rob on Twitter at Rob Fontenot. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line 
prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.